Today on the show, I'm joined by Professor Craig L. Blomberg. Craig is a New Testament historian and scholar, somebody that I've been wanting to have on the show for quite a while. He's written a few books around the reliability of the scriptures of the New Testament itself. I've read these books and been very challenged by his approach to exploring, especially the Gospels, but the New Testament as a whole. And I want him to come on the show today to answer some of the questions that I've posed to individuals like Bartoman in the past. I've noticed more and more that as I begin to reevaluate what scholars are currently saying as they're looking at the New Testament, my opinion has shifted quite dramatically. You can go back in the archives, you can hear conversations like Bartoman, like I just mentioned. Um, you can also hear me and Dave reflecting on the Old Testament, the New Testament and Christianity in general. What I've noticed is I got to a position where I was very, very much able to push aside scripture and say it's completely worthless. It's just an extrapolation of a few individuals who believe they had some sort of experience of the risen Jesus, that Jesus was in fact a person, but that this movement Christianity spun away from them and got out of their hands in no time at all. And that what we have then is the, the movement Christianity, but not the actual truth of whether Jesus did die and believe that he was the Messiah and then was raised again. Like we just don't know that stuff. But actually, the more I've explored this space, the more I've read books like Craig L. Bomberg's books, the more I've been challenged that even if I don't necessarily believe that Jesus rose from the dead, right? I'm not in that space at the moment, but that's the sort of big question that we all need to come to. I can no longer just brush aside these manuscripts and say, it's just fabrication. It's just extrapolation. They hold weight and they hold authority. And so I need to push into that and I need to explore it. So the questions I ask Craig today are questions that I find to be challenging and moving. They're questions that I thought I once had an answer to. But the more I look at it, the more I research, the more I understand that even agnostic scholars, not necessarily Christian, but even agnostic scholars still hold views that are very different to the views that I used to hold. And actually, my opinions and views seem to have been quite fringe and quite maybe popular online, but not necessarily truthful to what scholarship is saying now. I found this conversation to be challenging and fascinating. I plan to have Craig back on the show in due course to dive into some of the facets that I wanted to ask him about in this conversation, but alas, we only had an hour to get into it. Um, I find it really interesting as well. I actually read a few quotes directly from my Bible, which is something that I've never done on When Belief Dies before. If you're new to When Belief Dies, this is your first time checking us out, then I'd ask you to hit the subscribe button and then hit the notification bell. That will remind you whenever we release a video. If you wouldn't mind giving it a thumbs up and then sharing it with friends, family, followers, we grow through word of mouth. So giving it a like that helps the algorithm. It helps to boost us. And hopefully when people search for New Testament reliability, they'll come to videos like this and sharing it with those that you know will enjoy it will hopefully mean they can tag along for the journey as well. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Professor Craig Blomberg. Cheers. Hello and welcome to another episode of When Belief Dies. My name's Sam. Today I'm joined by Professor Craig Blomberg. Professor Blomberg, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. So I've got a bunch of questions, which I'm really looking forward to diving in with you today. And um, before we jump into those, it'd be really helpful just to give my audience maybe just a one minute kind of background about who you are, if that's okay. 
I uh, have taught for 37 years, just about. Um, the last two of them part-time in retirement at Denver Seminary. Uh, in recent years, my title was Distinguished Professor of New Testament, and um, I'm a bit of a writeaholic. I've written about 20 books on my own, another 10 with one or two others, and some of them are now going into second and third editions. Um, interests include the reliability of the scriptures, uh, interpreting parables, um, commentaries on books like Matthew, 1 Corinthians, and James, <clears throat> money matters, and um, talking with Mormons, as well as a miscellaneous bit of other things. That's amazing. I've I've read um, parts of your books on the sort of reliability of the New Testament or the scriptures, um, found it to be very, very challenging and thought, I need to talk to you. So here we are. Here we are. Um, okay, so let's let's dive in. I'm aware, whole host of questions. We've got an hour. Let's see how many we get through. So the first sort of question is, um, how should we approach the New Testament when we read it? What, what sort of genre do you do you think it is i mean we could look at maybe just the gospels for this example but how, how should we approach these sort of ancient manuscripts well that's the the first thing that needs to be addressed if you're talking about the entire new testament you're talking about four uh, somewhat different genres uh, gospels uh, one book of acts uh, a lot of letters and an apocalypse um, so the New Testament is a collection of 27 books, even though people tend to think of it as a book. Um, if we're just talking about the Gospels, then my uh, preferred term is that they are theological biographies. Uh, the works of which we know that they are most closely parallel to in form, structure, style, are other Jewish, Greek, and Roman biographies of the ancient Mediterranean world. Um, and in those days, um, perhaps unlike today, uh, nobody wrote history or biography who was not motivated by the conviction that there was something to learn from the lives of the people they described, and hence ideologically motivated. So to say that the Gospels are theological biographies, simply says that the ideology had something to do with God. No, I like that. that. That definitely makes sense. And I guess the sort of figure of Jesus or Christ within within the Gospels, various scholars come, come at that, obviously with different lenses, usually kind of bringing their own beliefs to it. Um, but I'm aware that in more recent times, the sort of idea of Jesus being a myth has been quite heavily kind of put forward. So kind of my sort of next question really is myth, man or God, what can we confidently say and take away from the New Testament about Jesus and why? It's, it's certainly true. There have been a, a handful of very outspoken um, people who have supported the myth option, but among bona fide New Testament scholars, uh, there's almost no one who would argue for that. Uh, the vast majority um, recognizing that we have more than uh, a dozen different sources from the earliest centuries uh, by Jewish, Greek, and Roman writers who were not uh, Christians, not believers, uh, attesting to various things about the life of Jesus, the, the idea that Jesus didn't exist, um, I'm afraid, is itself the myth. Um, but then there is a huge diversity 
that you're right um, can depend heavily on one's presuppositions if one is utterly convinced that there is no God and uh, that there is no possibility that there is a God, then obviously one will be closed to any ideas that uh, suggest that Jesus was in any way divine. Um, if one is at the other end of the spectrum uh, convinced that um, the Bible is uh, completely accurate and uh, scholarship is not even permitted to challenge that, then one will probably be convinced that Jesus was divine, but not actually engaging in historical study. Um, and in between, there is probably a plurality of views today, uh, of people today who would adopt the view that um, from uh, historical methods alone, we can say that Jesus was um, an eschatological prophet, someone who believed in um, the coming end of uh, the world as people conceived of it in his day, that he was very much Jewish, although at times marking out distinctive positions within Judaism, um, that he was uh, something of a self-styled rabbi who gathered disciples, taught and proclaimed the message of the in-breaking kingdom of God, of which he was uh, a unique harbinger or spokesperson. Um, there is a remarkable uh, consensus even outside of more conservative circles that Jesus worked um, what have traditionally been called miracles, um, at least of healings and exorcisms, whatever actually might have happened, um, that's how they were perceived in his day. Um, and there is a growing, I think, plurality would be fair to say, and maybe approaching a time when we reach a slight majority that would say um, Jesus had some sense of what can properly be called a messianic consciousness, admittedly um, what people expected or longed for in a Messiah very considerably. Um, so that marks out something of a, a middle position among the options that you gave. Interesting, interesting. I really want to dive into the messianic bit. I know Daniel 7 and 9 are quite heavily thought through with this space, but we'll kind of save that because it's not one of my questions and let's not dive into it. <laughs> um, okay, so um, obviously the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, um, people often kind of claim that they copied from, e from each other and there's, I'm, I'm aware, a whole host of ways that people have tried to kind of draw this out. Very often it's referred to as the synoptic problem. So sort of a, quite a general question. I'm aware that all of these questions people have written very, very long books on. So I, I really appreciate your sort of brief and, and to the point answers there are extremely helpful. So why are these sources so similar to each other? Uh, does this suggest copying? And if so, does this lessen their claims? Um, yes and no, respectively. Um, there are enough verbal uh, similarities uh, in parallel passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, to, at a number of points, um, make the uh, hypothesis probable that um, the later of two Gospels was aware of the previous one 
and uh, whether or not they had uh, a scroll open in front of them that they were directly copying from or perhaps largely from memory, um, which would then account for some of the, the slight variations perhaps, uh, certainly depended, uh, uh, Matthew and Luke most likely depended on Mark. Um, there is greater uh, disagreement whether Matthew depended on Luke or the other way around, or more commonly that the two um, independently resourced uh, a collection of sayings of Jesus, since what they have in common not found in Mark are, with just a few exceptions, almost all teachings and parables of Jesus, the type of thing that we know from other examples in other movements uh, were often uh, copied down and, and committed to writing. Um, does that mean that we cannot treat them as three independent sources? That is correct. Um, although there are still uh, considerable portions, especially of Matthew and Luke, that are unique to their gospels. And so many scholars would say at those points, they no doubt had uh, source material, oral or written that they were relying on um, that does not interfere with uh, the other gospels that we're aware of. So if you want to talk about independent sources um, for the life of Jesus, <clears throat> You need a theory about the solution to the synoptic problem, and if you take the, the most common theory, your independent sources would be Mark, Q, the uh, designation from the German word quella, which just means source, of the sayings material that Matthew and Luke share, not found in Mark, and then information unique to Matthew, information unique to Luke, John, um, possibly some uh, sources outside of the New Testament in some scholars' minds. Um, and when you find um, teachings, uh, actions of Jesus, uh, key themes that are repeated across those strata, then you can say you have uh, multiple independently attested information. really interesting um I'm, I'm also aware that we don't have any manuscripts that we could say are things like q um i'm aware we're not, not that's right to this but it's, it's interesting like the theories are fascinating but then when you actually look at the manuscriptural evidence it's it's also kind of lacking which is which raises other interesting points about the actual authorship of the gospels which is the next question um so it's often claimed that the new testament authors were writing in another language and another country and probably didn't even know jesus personally luke obviously kind of didn't necessarily know Jesus, but was traveling with Paul. We're aware of that from Acts and the sort of way that he starts the Gospel of Luke off. Um, so how do we actually come to the position where we know that these texts are actually transferring the details and the reality of Jesus' life, death and resurrection? 
if if I can combine my answer to that with with the point that you began with, um, what we have in uh, numerous um, accounts of ancient individuals, lives of Caesars, um, biographies of Alexander the Great, um, the lives of eminent philosophers by Diogenes Laertius and others, are regular references to earlier sources um, that no longer exist. And one of the reasons, uh, besides things simply being lost in antiquity, that smaller sources that historians and biographers relied on no longer exist is because they weren't needed, they were incorporated into the, the longer texts. So on the one hand, it's perfectly appropriate to say um, the hypothesized Q document does not exist independently of the four Gospels, but in fact it may well exist in the 235 verses or thereabouts that Matthew and Luke have in common, not in Mark, in which case there would have been no need to, to save those documents. Um, there is no foolproof way um, using historical methods to uh, determine authorship of anonymous documents, which is officially what uh, the four Gospels are. The uh, manuscripts for centuries had, had no names attached to uh, what today we think of as certain chapters and verses, but um, the oldest known documents where we have the very beginnings preserved, where titles were put on, uh, all do refer to the gospel according to, and then either Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, which has suggested to most people that Mark may well have uh, been the first to create that kind of a title, and then others, in order to distinguish their works from his, uh, used the same wording, um, euangelion kata, uh, the gospel according to, but then substituted uh, the other three names instead. There are a lot of questions surrounding the authorship, and uh, most of it depends on how heavily you weight um, what are called external and internal evidences. Um, there are a variety of features internally within the text of the Gospels that have led uh, many scholars to wonder or even assert dogmatically that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John could not have written those uh, documents. But what's interesting is that when you look at the datings suggested by the vast majority, we're still looking at first century dates and within two generations of uh, the lifetime uh, of Jesus of Nazareth, which by ancient standards, oral cultures carefully preserving uh, important epic and even sacred traditions is, is a quite reasonable length of time for, for good information to be preserved. On the other hand, if we take the unanimous uh, conviction of those second, third, fourth century Christian writers who supplied information about the authorship, then uh, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the synoptics, the first three, not being people that you would naturally attribute a falsified document to, as we find plenty of examples in the so-called apocryphal and Gnostic texts, 
Mark, barely known except for having abandoned Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Luke, known only from two brief references in greetings at uh, uh, the ends of Paul's letters, where in one case he is referred to as um, Paul's beloved physician. And Matthew, the converted tax collector, um, probably never became wildly popular um, even after Jesus' death. Um, and so uh, scholars from the center to somewhat right of center on the scholarly spectrum will still routinely say that a good case can be made that these descriptions of authorship are correct. So just picking up on a point you made right at the start about the sort of kind of um, gospels being potentially anonymous, I guess, and you're absolutely right, like the, the largest majority of New Testament scholars do believe that this or New Testament historians believe this. And kind of, I, I recently read a book called The Case for Jesus by Brandt uh, Petrie, um, and he kind of basically sketched out, for, for what I could tell, is a very convincing case, which is that none of our earliest manuscripts are anonymous and no church fathers are talking as if these gospels were anonymous um but yet everybody seems to come to the position that these gospels started off as anonymous i kind of wonder why could could you help me understand why that is the position that scholars hold because i feel like we should be starting with they aren't anonymous and then having evidence to suggest they were anonymous rather than saying they were anonymous then looking at the evidence and going i can't see how that makes sense so could you help me with that it, it, it's certainly true. Uh, Simon Gathercall in Cambridge is uh, another one who uh, has has defended this recently, um, and they may well be right. Um, I think it's always important uh, for someone who is uh, somewhat conservative in their scholarship, like I am, to uh, not always adopt the most conservative position available, lest people accuse you of simply doing that for the sake of doing it rather than because that's where the evidence points you to. Um, it does strike me that um, it's very possible that as um, individual gospels were first produced, um, again, if we accept uh, the little information we have from early tradition, um, they were addressed with the needs and desires of one particular community or group of Christian communities in mind. Um, they would have then been copied and disseminated much more widely. Um, but uh, the idea that um, someone, perhaps even the author, um, independently or because they were knowingly part of an accumulating tradition, chose the identical formula to introduce all four with, varying only the name, uh, strikes me as perhaps a bit more improbable than that someone at the point, perhaps very late first or early second century, for the first time collecting these four together as a group found it important to differentiate them and did so by the identical generic label then followed by the the varying author's name um, but what you've suggested from from petra is is certainly possible yeah i find it 
I find that, that that space to be so interesting that these gospels were written to a group of individuals to address their needs and to address their understandings. I kind of also wonder, this isn't really a question, it's just more, more musing, so apologies, but um, I kind of also wonder whether these gospels would have been written potentially without the title, but also been passed over with a letter to an individual and then sent on again, potentially not with a title, but with a letter saying this is what was passed to us from X, Y, or Z. And then as they were accumulated, these titles got added to us, but that they were never actually anonymous that's i think the sort of kind of heart of my question is a lot of people point to them and say they were just written by somebody out in the sticks and got sucked into this vortex that became the new testament oh i see yeah, yeah. no i think what what people mean when they refer to them as anonymous is to distinguish the the phenomena of the gospels from say most of the epistles of the new testament where within the text itself, typically at the very beginning, is uh, a claim for authorship. Um, it's that that we don't find in what we call Mark 1-1 or Matthew 1-1, and that's all that people typically mean when they say it's anonymous. Yeah, I think I think that point is, is lost on so many people. Anyway, we'll leave that there, but that's such a fascinating one. To As are to. many other points. <laughs> yeah, no, I can imagine. I can absolutely imagine. Um, okay, so um, quite a big question, but I think one well worth going into. So um, I'll kind of try and read this one carefully. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, Jesus seems to shift from a apocalyptic preacher in Mark into the figure, uh, into a figure with higher and higher Christology. So Matthew, Luke, and then to John. Um, it should be noted that some New Testament scholars, such as Bart Ehrman, also look at pre and post New Testament texts to a point to an even broader shift from apocalyptic um, to Gnostic poetic narratives. Uh, but sticking with just the New Testament for now, um, does this shift suggest a creative bending of the figure of Christ from apocalyptic preacher to messianic prophet to messiah God? Is that in there at all? I, it, many things uh, are in there at all, if you want to find little bits of things. Um, I would challenge the premise in the last sentence where you began with, given this shift. Um, certainly if one uh, looks at um, selectively certain portions of each gospel, you can create um, that kind of a trajectory and also uh, pre and post New Testament literature. Um, I find it interesting, nevertheless, that even in Mark, there are two places, one when Jesus is walking on the water and one when uh, he is describing uh, false messiahs that will arise, that uh, the language of the Greek is that uh, Jesus speaks and says, don't be afraid, ego eimi, I am, uh, which can legitimately be translated, I am he, but in uh, a scene that is at least preternatural, if not supernatural to begin with, certainly seems uh, to be echoing and to be suggestive of uh, the revelation of God to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3, 6, I am who I am. Um, and the same with the, the false messiahs coming in Jesus' name saying, I am. Um, Matthew and Luke have uh, narratives of the virginal conception, which certainly suggests uh, an exalted lofty origin for um, 
Jesus, even though they don't have uh, the numerous um, more distinctive sayings that John has, uh, seven I am's followed by things like the way, the truth, and the life, the resurrection, and the life, the good shepherd, the bread of life, and so forth. On the other hand, um, we have to remember that those sayings in John are all based on metaphors, and Jesus' disciples, even in the upper room in John chapter 16, make the remarkable statement, now you are speaking plainly as if all of those seemingly plain revelations to Christians after the fact that we've learned to interpret uh, were still somewhat cryptic. Um, so I think we have to beware of exaggerating how consistently uh, John is monolithically high in its Christology as well as how supposedly low uh, the synoptics are. And the same is true. You move on to... Um, apocryphal teaching and um, yes you can find some Gnostic texts where you have a docetic Christ it doesn't even seem to be human uh, but you have some other texts uh, in the the so-called New Testament apocrypha that are not Gnostic that that have a, a very human and fallible Jesus if you go backwards behind um, the New Testament uh, there is um, a uh, whole branch of scholarship today studying what's called divine identity Christology and looking at characters such as patriarchs and um, angels and exalted men of other kinds in one strand of Second Temple Jewish thought <clears throat> that really pushes the boundaries of monotheism in a way that may well have set the stage for some of the things that uh, Jesus himself claimed. The whole son of man uh, concept coming out of Daniel 7. Uh, somebody who was like a human being, but ushered into the presence of the Ancient of Days and given dominion over all the kingdoms of the earth whose reign would last forever. Um, yeah, we've transcended a few boundaries there. Um, so my answer to your question is not an answer to the question part, but it's to challenge the premise. Will you support when belief dies? Your support enables us to keep having these conversations and improving everything that we do. There are three ways to support when belief dies. Firstly, would you rate when belief dies in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Audible? Rating us in these spaces boosts our visibility. Secondly, would you share this episode with your family, friends, and followers? We grow mainly through word of mouth, so please consider who might find this a helpful conversation and share it with them. Lastly, would you consider supporting the show financially? You can support the show on Patreon with a monthly gift or a one-off donation via PayPal or Bitcoin. Everything you give goes directly towards the running and improving of the podcast and YouTube channel. All links are in the description. And thank you for supporting the show. Right, let's get back to this week's conversation. That's a great point. I, um, I, I, I find that very often people do just decide that it's true that they do shift from um, 
lower to higher Christology. Um, but actually, you know, the more reading I'm doing, the more understanding I'm doing of the different moments within the Synoptic Gospels, even when Jesus makes it very clear that he's identifying himself with I am, with Yahweh. Um, it's, it's fascinating. Um, okay, so Christ's return. Bit of a gear shift, bit of a lane shift. We're going to move away from the Gospels. Um, so talking about Paul now for a little bit. Um, Paul's writings seem to, at times, express the thought that Christ would, would, would return, essentially, within his life. And as he went on, Paul seems to realise that he is going to die before Christ come back, uh, comes back. So this is a sort of twofold question. Um, the first part is, could you address the often mistaken imminent versus immediate nature of Paul's writings? And second, if Paul's belief about Christ's return was wrong, should this affect any of Paul's other beliefs? If it was wrong, it should affect uh, how we look at some of his other beliefs. Um, but if I go to the first question, then I think we can see that uh, it wasn't wrong. Um, immediacy is the idea that um, a particular writer or thinker um, is so convinced that uh, a monumental event will happen by a certain time that they give indication to that effect such that if it does not happen by that time, then their claims have been falsified. And that does not occur anywhere in uh, Paul's writings. The closest you get, <clears throat> excuse me, are almost back-to-back -back verses in 1 Thessalonians um, 4, verses 13 and 15, where he refers to uh, we who are alive when Christ returns, which uh, a number of commentators have pointed out, um, certainly allows for the possibility that Paul may have thought there was a good chance that um, he would be alive when this happened, but is the kind of expression that people gave elsewhere, and to a certain extent, we still do today. Um, if I say, um, we who live to see World War III, not to be pessimistic, um, I am not necessarily saying that I know I will live, I realize that there are people making such predictions. I realize that it could happen. I really hope it doesn't. Um, and that, that's where the analogy breaks down. Paul hoped it would, uh, the coming of Christ. Um, but uh, it's a way of saying, <clears throat> of involving a speaker with his or her audience to say, some of us almost certainly will live. Um, if not, um, then we'll move in another direction. But whoever is alive. Um, and so, again, I think Jesus himself talked about um, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. Uh, Mark 9, 1 in parallels um, was that provisionally fulfilled in either the transfiguration or the resurrection such that uh, Jesus wasn't mistaken. Uh, I suspect that it was. 
Um, but that's what creates the aura of imminence. Um, statements, events, harbingers, uh, foretastes, uh, foreshadowings of momentous coming events that make people believe it is quite possible, though not necessary, that something's going to happen very soon. Um, it's much harder to say, oh, right, those were just flat out disproved, therefore we discredit this individual. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and kind of often it is the latter, right? Often people kind of hear or read these things, assume that they think that that means Paul thought he would be alive and therefore, or, you know, he must have been wrong about that, he could be wrong about anything, therefore right. every, everything gets kind of shredded and thrown away, which is crazy, in, in my honest opinion. Um, I want to jump into... Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, uh, briefly. So I'm going to actually read it because I think that'd be quite helpful, especially for those people that are on the move and don't have the time to, um, to pause it and look it up. So um, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 5. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. It carries on explaining who else Jesus appeared mm -hmm. to and then Paul shifts into kind of talking about himself. So there seems to be a section there which um, many people believe to be a creed just from the way it's written and, and the format and mm -hmm. the structure. Um, I'm saying that more for the audience than for yourself. I'm aware you fully know that. Um, so the question. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 5 seems to be a place where Paul is reminding the church what he has taught them, but that he was also taught it himself, hence the creedal format. Many apologists point to this as proof that, th that the tradition of Jesus being bodily raised was believed very early on. Most scholars attest that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in the mid-50s. So the question... Could this creed have been from the late 40s? If so, why do so many apologists want to push it to within a few years of the disciples claiming Jesus was raised? And, and it's interesting, uh, at least uh, in the last 30 so years, um, it was not uh, any one apologist, to my knowledge, who uh, developed this argument. It was the German atheist historian Gerd Ludemann in right. a book uh, in the 1990s, What Really Happened at the Resurrection, where his point is that the expression, as of first importance, um, it sounded like you might have been reading from the NIV. Uh, the NIV, New International Version, has a footnote that says this can also be translated at the first, um, meaning at the first moment of uh, Paul evangelizing the city of Corinth, but because he is talking about what he received and what he passed on in verbs that when they are paired in contexts like these regularly referred to um, fixed, almost catechetical tradition, um, it's quite probable that this is what Paul first received and has been passing on throughout his ministry uh, in the places where he shares the gospel. We can date the conversion of Saul to uh, pretty carefully to about two or three years after the death of Jesus. If we date, as most do, the crucifixion to 30, then we'd be talking about 32 or 33, that um, Paul would have 
Saul of Tarsus would have been taught this um, by people um, when he was led to the house in Damascus uh, where he received his sight back after he'd been blinded on the road. Um, and if it was, in fact, already a carefully formulated creed, uh, that tends to be done by groups of people rather than single individuals. We have to push the time frame back even before that two to three year period. And so it was Ludeman himself who said, um, I do not believe in God. I do not believe in the supernatural. Therefore, I do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. But I do believe that his followers had profound, profoundly subjective experiences that can be dated to very, very shortly after Jesus' death that convinced them he was alive. And so for him, the debate came down to um, resurrection belief versus actual resurrection. Um, but he had really no time for the idea of a slowly evolving myth based on other ancient Greek and Roman myths and legends that really didn't come to full fruition until, say, the end of the first century. That's so interesting. So a, a slight tangent, I think we're doing okay for time, so it's probably okay to pop into it, but um, a more agnostic or atheist scholars these days would would want to hold that creed to be, or at least suggest that the creed could have been later. Um, obviously kind of what sure. you've just laid out by a sort of, um, it sounds like an atheist scholar is actually almost an argument in favor of it being very, very early on. Um, kind of where do, where do you where do you sit with it yourself with your own sort of kind of readings of this? Do you, are you in agreement that it's a very early, early creed? I, I think it's very likely. Um, and again, one of the things that, that often distinguishes historians from uh, apologists, and I would hope that one could be both, but um, the idea that as we're looking at historical arguments, we are never looking at matters of certainty. We are always looking at matters of probability, weighing the probabilities of varying hypotheses. But then the more we understand uh, the other human disciplines, uh, the various sciences, um, they all base their theories on various probabilities. And we're continually reading about uh, revisions of scientific theories, sometimes dramatic ones or medical ones, um, hopefully revisions that are getting us closer to what is true, though it would be hard to argue that in the history of science, they've never taken a backward step. Um, and so uh, we find enough of life that is based on high enough probabilities that I get in my car and turn on the ignition and not once in my life have I ever looked under it to see if a bomb has been attached to the underside but if I were to move to certain parts of the world, that habit might need to change. Um, I take it on faith. Uh, and so far, the, the faith has been uh, founded in fact uh, that my car will not explode when I turn it on. There's such an interesting distinction around sort of faith being something that's actually based upon evidence rather than something you believe because you hope it's true. Um, right. One that gets missed quite a lot, I think. 
Um, okay, so I want to pivot. Um, we're going to come. We're actually going to come back to um, Paul's um, experience of Jesus on the road to Damascus shortly, which you mentioned before. But before we get to that, um, I want to talk about kind of like scribes, copies, and discrepancies, basically. And then the actual discrepancy is around sort of Paul's experience. So we'll get to that shortly. But to start with, um, some New Testament scholars claimed that scribes either deliberately or by mistake edited the texts of the New Testament to align with their specific Christological position. Um, did this happen? Probably did happen to some degree. Did this happen? Can we spot where it happens? And how do we kind of almost read around it or read the text with that in our minds? One of the uh, amazing things about New Testament textual criticism is the sheer uh, numbers of thousands of manuscripts and manuscript fragments that we have available uh, in uh, pre-Gutenberg Greek, uh, and then that number quadruples when we add the ancient languages that it was copied and translated into, and then copies of translations were made in the earliest Christian centuries. So yes, on a, a small scale, uh, that kind of phenomenon occurred many, many times, the, the most common of which was uh, a text in which there was a reference um, either to the Lord or to Jesus or to Christ. Um, in some manuscripts, uh, a second one of those titles or names was added. And then perhaps in some instances, in a few cases, uh, the remaining one was added so that now instead of just Christ, you had the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, doesn't change the information uh, that's being predicated of Jesus, uh, but it is um, uh, and probably was seen as a reverential way of uh, referring to uh, the person about which the author of the document the scribe was copying was talking about. Um, precisely because we have so many manuscripts, yes, we can exactly determine where it's happened. We can determine when it happened. We can determine how often it happened. And there are very standard uh, practices and principles for textual criticism that allow us, in the vast majority of instances, to postulate what the original would have been. The, the tendency to glorify Jesus by adding one or both of those names, it was so common. And the manuscripts in which the extra titles appear are so consistently later that um, it's rare that anybody uh, argues in the opposite direction. Oh, here's a text where it looks like the oldest said Lord Jesus Christ, and later on uh, it dropped down just to Jesus. We just don't see very much of that. Um, and so um, modern Greek editions of the New Testament, and then certainly uh your modern English translations, with the exception of the, the New King James Version, which still duplicates the, the textual basis of the Old King James, will give in footnotes. And I always encourage readers and listeners who use a phone version of the Bible to make sure they have a version that has the footnotes and they know how to click on the right places to get those footnotes because then you can read them and decide for yourself what are the really exciting differences that, oh, really 
only very rarely occur. Um, <laughs> and most of them are quite mundane and uh, quite irrelevant for establishing the meaning of the text. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's dive into a discrepancy then. Um, I, I call it discrepancy. It's something that I've noticed and thought, hey, this would be interesting to talk about. So let's see where we go. But um, so some people claim that scriptures poorly edited or compiled um, because of discrepancy that they've noted. Um, I'm not saying that's true. I think the one I'm going to give you could be answered quite quite easily but obviously i'd love to get your take on it so um we're going to look at acts basically i'm going to grab my bible again to actually read these out um so we're looking at um paul's um conversion or maybe he converted later but his experience of god on the road to damascus as uh, first of all as luke writes it and then secondly as paul experiences it. so the first one is acts 9 7 um, so let me read this out so so just for the listener really clearly so this the these are the words specifically about um the individuals who are with Paul at the time and what they experienced, because they're slightly different in both versions. So Acts 9, 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And then the second one is in Acts 29, 9. So this one says, now those who were with me saw the light, but did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. So Acts 9, 7, we have individuals that heard, but didn't see and then in acts 29 9 we saw individuals who saw but didn't hear the voice a lot of people would look at this and go it doesn't make sense they're using sight and and and, and sound and they're getting these two things confused as they're kind of writing it back later on but obviously you're the expert professor blomberg so how, how do you kind of look at things like that as discrepancies i want to preface my reply by saying since you use this immediately after talking about textual criticism, that we want to make it clear that this is not uh, that kind of phenomena. Um, there are not significant manuscripts that change either of the verses that you just read. Uh, you read what overwhelmingly, most likely, um, Luke originally wrote, one time as narrator, one time when he's reporting what, uh, what Paul said. Um, there are two ways that you can go on this. Um, one that many uh, more conservative scholars would say is, yes, there is a, a minor discrepancy, but let's read the entire account. And by the way, there's a third one in the book of Acts. Um, Paul twice tells his story in the latter chapters of Acts when he's before various councils or tribunals compare those two accounts with this one in Acts 9, and you will find a half a dozen very minor but interesting slight differences, and this is how ancient storytelling functioned. Um, not one of them says that Paul wasn't converted. Not one of them disagrees that the Lord appeared to him in, in the heavens. Um, not one of them changes where Paul was, uh, what happened to him afterwards, where he went after that, what happened to him after that. And those are the kinds of things that 
you should expect routinely to uh, be most secure in scriptural narratives. Personally, I would, I would go one step further and say that it's fascinating in the, the Greek here that um, the word for hearing, a very, very common Greek verb, akuo, um, could trigger a direct object, that which was heard, uh, in one of two cases, endings that were put uh, on Greek nouns to indicate their function in the sentence. And sometimes when a given verb could mean more than one thing, there could be two and sometimes even three different case endings that it would trigger on the noun that was its direct object. It's fascinating that akuo in Genesis, Genesis where did that come from? In Acts 9 um, is followed by um, an object in the genitive case. That's where it came from. I was thinking genitive. And in, in chapter 22, akuo plus the accusative case, and that at times, not consistently in first century Greek, but still in many instances, akuo with the genitive means to hear without understanding. Akuo with the accusative means to hear with understanding, in which case um, they would both be saying the same thing in Acts 9, that the men traveling with Saul heard the sound, but without any understanding. And in the second passage, that they did not hear the sound with understanding. A critical reply to that is often that in the New Testament, and even in Luke's Greek, in Luke and Acts, he does not always follow that distinction. That's true. Many speakers in languages that are in the process of mutating into something else, as almost all languages always are, uh, will often um, use words one way in one context and then go to what's more trendy or what was more old-fashioned in some other context. So I'm not sure that's a defeater. Why did Luke preserve this difference in the Greek in contexts that were so remarkably similar if it didn't have any significance? I think it does. It's really interesting, and I'm really glad you kind of highlighted the difference just then around um, uh, discrepancies and things that are going back to the earliest manuscripts that we have and probably are the originals. I mean, another one I find, it isn't, it's not a discrepancy, it's just a really interesting feature of the gospel narrative. So um, Matthew 28, 17 has this fabulous term, some doubted, uh, whilst they're actually kind of looking at the sort of risen Jesus up on the mountainside, um, some doubted. And it's just this... Like why? Why would the author leave that in? Like, surely they want to be showing that everybody, everybody bowed down. It was a, it was a done deal. Everybody realized that Jesus had risen from the dead, and this was definitely the right thing. And, and I just kind of feel like these things are left in there to show us the human reality of the situation and time and place. I'm aware this wasn't a question at all, Professor Blomberg, but what are your thoughts around these sort of throwaway lines, like things like some doubted that we find right. in these accounts? I agree entirely, uh, and it's not just that one comment in Matthew. Um, 
when you go to Luke and to John, you, you see the same phenomenon described differently. So uh, Cleopas and his unnamed companion on the road to Emmaus do not recognize that Jesus is walking and conversing with him for a significant period of time until he is revealed to them in the breaking of the bread, in a meal that they share together. Mary Magdalene in, in John 20 uh, is waiting, weeping in the garden and sees an individual she thinks is a gardener until he speaks to her in Aramaic and she recognizes uh, that it's Jesus. Um, in uh, Earlier in Luke's account, um, uh, the disciples uh, are not sure whether they're seeing a ghost. And Jesus says, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as I have. Um, in John 21, uh, the apostles are in a boat and they see somebody making breakfast on the shore and no one dared to ask if it was the Lord. Well, why even say that unless there were some who were having doubts? If I see a figure who is genuinely glorified and transformed dramatically from a normal human being to say nothing of a marred, mutilated, crucified, buried body, I can't imagine not having doubts as to what on earth I am seeing, much less who I am seeing. Uh, I find those little bits incredibly realistic. Yeah, they had a, a fascinating... Um level of detail um it just makes them very human in a very interesting way which i i appreciate um so the next sort of question is really around how how to encourage individuals like me who have been very skeptical of the new testament accounts due to popular books that i've read um i guess I can kind of literally write it here. It like it's very easy to read a book by someone like ehrman um and feel good about rejecting the new testament so what would you suggest that one reads to challenge these ideas and to understand why someone might take these documents as authentic and serious? I would begin by pointing out that if um, someone had a medical diagnosis where the doctor suggested um, things were terminal, but there were comments that he or she made both about the patient's history and possible um, approaches to try to uh, uh, stop the spread of the cancer or whatever it was. People routinely look for a second opinion. Um, it astonishes me that people can read a single skeptical collection of arguments about Jesus and somehow think that must be what everyone believes or that that's the end of the story. If something that your physical health and well-being depends on is important enough to get a second opinion, surely something that one's spiritual well-being, arguably for all eternity, hinges on would be worth getting second, third, fourth, fifth number of opinions. Figure out, and Google makes it easier than it has been in the history of humanity, 
Um, but there still are some things that are found in a dinosaur-like artifact called a book that can be very useful. Um, not all of human knowledge is yet on Google. I am sorry if that bursts some people's bubbles. Um, and discern um, what the range of scholarly options are on a topic and what their rationales are for their opinions and then make an informed decision. So if you've just read Bart Ehrman and no one else, try Craig Blumberg, um, The Historical Reliability of the Gospels, or if you think I'm biased, because we all are, um, read uh, Mark Roberts or Pete Williams, who've each written little books uh, on uh, the trustworthiness, uh, can the Gospels be trusted uh, titles along those lines. Balance one side out with another and then start to form some opinions. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. That's something that I've, I've been very challenged. Like I kind of read a lot of Ehrman, um, started reading some more uh, sort of Dale C. Allison. I've spoken to Dale a few times, actually. Um, absolutely fantastic character. And then kind of just trying to also understand a bit more of a sort of, not necessarily a conservative, but sort of um, the more recent study around how people and why people view the scriptures to be authentic and telling a story that is true and mm -hmm. going people believe this with an actual weight of authority and i kind of want to know why and actually dive into that a little bit more um although it's terrifying as well at the same time i'm not gonna lie to you what if it's all true what if it's all true um okay last question then so you've mentioned a few authors already terrifying and delightful yeah 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 absolutely uh it's terrifying and delightful um Okay, so last question before I let you disappear. I'm aware we're hitting up to our hour mark now. Um, what recommended reading? Are you, you've mentioned a few books just then, but are there any? Is there one or two books you would really encourage somebody to go away and and dive into if they wanted to explore this space a little bit more? So much depends on on who the person is. Uh, are we talking about? Um, a 15-year-old of average intellectual ability, um, get any one of Lee Strobel's books, but start with Case for Christ that he edited now 26 years ago, and it still uh, sells and has brought countless people to Christ over the years with his interviews of bonafide scholars, but then simplifying them and summarizing them in, in a very fun and readable way. If uh, you're someone who uh, has tackled um, all the mid-level works and you want a scholarly tome um, and you think that the resurrection might just be at the heart of all the controversy, then you can't do any better than uh, N.T. writes The Resurrection of the Son of God with seven or 800 pages of meticulously argued um, material. If there's a question about the resurrection that he doesn't treat, it must be because nobody's yet asked it. Um, <laughs> but somewhere in the middle, uh, I am grateful that my books have helped folks over the years and I hope that they continue to do so. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll have links to your books on the sort of reliability of the New Testament and, and scriptures um, in the comments. So listener, 
viewer, if you want to check those out, please do check out those links below. Um, Professor Blomberg, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. I hope you enjoyed this episode of When Belief Dies. As always, to leave any comments or thoughts, head on over to YouTube. To follow me on Twitter or to see where else I'm online, check out the links in the description. Thank you to all our regular givers for making this show a reality. And until next time, enjoy the journey.